Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, it's pro stock racer Matt Hartford and A-Fuel dragster competitor Will Smith. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. Talking gear banging pro stock action and burning nitro injected style. Goodbye snake and hello ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Welcome to another edition of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thanks for tuning in on what has turned into a fairly busy news week around the world of NHRA drag racing. If the rock you're living under doesn't have internet, I guess you wouldn't be listening to this show. But uh, if you missed the announcement, uh, the NHRA did state that they have made and will be making more changes to the 2020 schedule. Um, No real specific dates were given at this point. I'll go into a little bit of reason probably why on that. But for right now, the NHRA has announced that there will be no racing in June. Uh, There will be no Gator Nationals in June. There will be no other planned races in June. Uh, as well as July, they're talking about a uh, August uh, time frame restart, and um, I think that's going to come with some changes. Obviously, there are some races that are going to have to shift around. Some stuff's going to pivot, move, and you're going to find that uh, this this remaining time frame of the year, starting in August and planning to run 16 races between August and mid-November, where uh, Pomona is still slated to land means that there is going to be an incredible amount of NHRA drag racing in a very compressed time frame to the point of people that have um, functioning digits on their hands and feet can count the number of weeks and the number of races and do some very simple math as to how frequently we will be competing. Um, and it is every week, uh, not every other week, not a couple weeks on and a couple weeks off. Uh, it will, if this all comes to pass, uh, will be a marathon style competition for the ages and it will be a test of everybody's metal from the crewmen and women that service the cars to the folks that are driving the equipment around to the people that man the midway i mean it is going to test everybody if it is what we believe it's going to be coming to pass so um you know people were a little bit miffed maybe i heard a little bit of miffing on the internet uh who people wanted dates you know they wanted specific dates Where are we going to be racing and when and how, why, where, that kind of thing. What races are going to move? Obviously, if we're going to go to a 16-race program, there's going to be some some races that will not be part of that 16-race program. What are those? And that information was not included in the news release that was dropped this week. And there are some, I would say, some reasons why. And these are of my own conjecture. These are not talking points anybody's given me. These are probably things that maybe I will get myself in trouble for even speaking about. But... um, when you make an announcement like this, you have to consider a couple of things. One is, if you were to come out today and announce exactly what the tracks that we're going to and what the dates are, um, you are going to set off a chain of events for those specific racetracks that will be uh, and will require a lot of uh, manpower and labor. So, if for at this moment, if the NHRA announced, you know, next weekend we're going to be racing at Denver, as an example. Immediately, Denver's website and phones would melt. Everybody would be on the phone trying to figure out tickets. Do my tickets still count? Do I need new tickets? What's the program? Can I get a refund? Can I transfer my stuff? I can't make it next weekend. Onward and onward and onward with those issues. Now take that and multiply it by all these racetracks 
that we're talking about. Now take that in consideration for the fact that most of these tracks, if not every single one of them, is currently operating with a less than full crew for various reasons, whether they are uh, you know, working from home, whether they are on a reduced staff because they've been unable to start their season. You know, We can make, go down the list of reasons why any number of these racetracks or all of these racetracks is operating with a reduced staff at the moment. So if you make an announcement like this, and you give specificity to it, and you make significant changes that are going to cause a lot of questions, uh, rightful questions from customers and fans, then you're doing a grave disservice to the businesses that need to field those questions. Because there's one thing worse than somebody who is concerned about money they've spent being wasted or being unable to be applied. And that, that thing is not being able to get a hold of anybody and get an answer. So it is one thing to be concerned that, you know, this ticket investment I've made, maybe I can't get to the race this year if the schedule's changed. That's one big problem. I agree with that 100%. As a guy who, you know, like everybody else out there works for a living, I get it. You want to spend the money and you want to get the most value for it. But it becomes exponentially worse when you have a person who is concerned and is starting and is wanting answers, rightfully wanting answers, is calling the business that they need to get answers from and they can't because of uh, an overwhelming amount of work for a small reduced staff. So the information, as I understand it, will be coming uh, with some specificity in the next couple of weeks, along with additional schedules for the Pro Modified Series, the Pro Stock Bike Series, the Mickey Thompson Top Fuel Harley Davidson Series. And the list goes on and on. So, um, you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, obviously I'm thankful for the the work that I do with NHRA, the spot that I have uh, in the in the totem pole, if you will, of uh, of information and of what we do. And you know, because of that position, people think that I, you know, know a lot of stuff that uh, nobody else knows, which is um, entirely untrue. I I get information as is needed to be passed to me. I don't have any sort of uh, executive capabilities with the company, so I get it and um, I hold on to it as I am as I am asked to. So. I got a lot of contact over the last couple of days by racers, by teams, by people who were like kind of looking for the inside scoop, and uh, I'm grateful that they think I am uh, I am that deep into the into the matrix here to have stuff to share. But the reality is, I don't. And those are meetings and uh, those are planning sessions that uh, the announcing staff doesn't get invited to. There are people that have uh, that responsibility, which aren't me. I am thankful though, and I'm honestly thankful that people uh, you know people do reach out and kind of tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, man, what do you know? It's a, uh, you know, I find it to be, I guess, a good thing that people feel as though they can ask me those type of questions. But it has been an interesting couple of days and it will be an interesting couple of weeks. And hell, it's been an interesting couple of months, I guess. The good news is, I think, on this NHRA announcement, and it's what one part of it that we all kind of expected, is that we will be racing in front of fans. Now, it doesn't say we're going to be racing in front of full grandstands or 100% capacity. But the decision being made, one of the major drivers was to have the series contested in front of in front of fans. NASCAR is starting up very soon. They are going to be running several races without fans in the stands. Not faulting them for it, their business model allows that to, to happen. And the revenue generated by their TV contracts allow that to happen. The NHRA is a ticket-driven business. This is not news to anybody. This is, uh, this is basically... Um, the the way the company is structured and has been structured for a very long time. So two things happen if you don't race to the fans. One, it really does take away everything that is great about NHRA drag racing in terms of the people's access to the sport and the racers and the cars and the mechanical fun that goes on out there. And two, 
it doesn't make a lot of business sense. Um, it, 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 if you're, you're taking this experience away from the fans is one thing. You don't want that to happen. And two, if it's going to be financially uh, not helpful or feasible, you're not really doing yourself any favor. So the move to August, um, I, I applaud the NHRA for what they've done there. I like the fact that they've made an announcement that is uh, specific, specific enough to let people know that we will not be starting for a couple of months. And now, again, it doesn't say exactly where or when we are starting or what the order of races will be. That will come. But it at least takes the fear away from people who are wondering, I mean, should I pack up to go to the Gator Nationals? Should I get that Airbnb I was thinking about getting you know, for the Gator Nationals weekend? Or what about the rescheduled date for Houston? Should I change my tickets to the June date? Or is there another date for Houston? All that stuff has kind of been answered in that first in the short term anyway, in the release that came out this week. So I get the frustration of people that have it, um, but I also get to see both sides of the coin. And I do understand how hard and diligently the people within the NHRA office have and, and executive team have been working on this schedule. And it's not a schedule that they have um, just willy-nilly slapped together. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation with race teams. There's been a lot of conversation with with people that are involved, the you know stakeholders, so to speak, involved in the series. So what we're going to see when we start is going to be interesting. It's going to be two-day events. That was announced as well. Professional. Now, I should, I should clarify that. They will still be three-day events, meaning Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series action will start on Friday. We'll run Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Professional categories will run on Saturday and Sunday. Two rounds of qualifying for all of our pro categories and then into traditional Sunday eliminations. All of the events outside of the U.S. Nationals will be in this layout in this duration. The U.S. Nationals being the size that it is, my understanding at this point will be a little bit more extended than that. Don't know if it will be a full length, what we typically understand as a full length U.S. Nationals, or if it will be a modified version. But I do understand that the U.S. Nationals will be the one lone exception to the two-day professional layout. Now, if you're a fan of Lucas Oil Drag Racing, this is actually a pretty good setup for you. Because you can spend an entire day on Friday watching nothing but great sportsman cars. Stock, super stock, super gas, super comp, uh, alcohol cars if they're at that particular race. Vortex, superchargers, top sportsman, top dragster. A day of kind of unfettered, uninterrupted sportsman fun. And I don't know what the specific layout of that will be. Is it a little bit of qualifying in round one? Is it all qualifying in round one on Saturday? That I don't know. But I will tell you this. If I'm a sportsman racer and I'm planning on attending some events this year, I feel like I'm going to enjoy this layout. And I'm not just saying it to say it. I feel like on a Friday, you're going to know uh, you're not going to be bumped off the schedule. You're not going to have some sort of uh, interruption. You're not going to have your plan, whatever it may be, uh, disrupted because of for whatever reason. Weather's coming in. We got to get some pros run, stuff like that. It will be all sportsman racing in a very pure sense. As the weekend goes on, the event will look and feel very similar to what events have looked and felt like before and then sunday we'll be crowning champions and handing out wallies on the return road as we do at each and every national event on the mellow yellow series tour on the professional side two rounds of qualifying now this drastically changes a lot of things you know nascar um, these first events that they're coming back with they are running no qualifying and no practice which i'm not even that big a nascar fan you know i don't really follow the series but i will watch these first couple races because these teams literally have to push the cars off the trailer and go straight to the racetrack so there's no no jerking around out there it's going to be very fun to see what teams can hit the setup right off the trailer 
for NHRA drag racing, having only two qualifying sessions now does drastically changes what's going to happen in terms of how people will approach qualifying and what the first couple of rounds of eliminations will look like. I feel as though we're going to see um, a lot of calamity-style stuff happening in qualifying. You're going to see that second session, you're going to see a lot of very good cars pedaling a lot more than you ever would because um, in the event we have fields that are over 16 cars, which I do expect at several races, of course, um, you're going to have guys that smoke the tires in the first qualifying session and start to smoke them in qualifying session two, and they just have to go into survival mode. It Qualifying session two is going to feel a lot like round one eliminations, I think, for a lot of people. And moving on to that point, round one and round two eliminations, I think we're going to see low ET of the race not necessarily set in qualifying as we always seem to do, but we're going to see a lot of that happening in E1 and E2. And, you know, depending on what schedule shuffles, changes, and rearrangements get made when the final word is uh, released, you know, there's potential for some races in very favorable atmospheric or very favorable, um, shall we say, altitudes to be run later in the year than they normally are, uh, which would make them very, very fast. And again, you can look down the list and try to figure that out on your own. But uh, the math is there if you look around and try to figure it out. So that's uh, the hot take here to get the show started. Sorry to run a little long in the old monologue, but there's been a lot going on uh, this week and around the schedule. And I'm hoping to give some light, shed some light on the mentality of some of the direction that's been given here. Um, at least from my understanding and from my perspective. So with that being said, we're going to welcome our first guest onto the NHRA Insider Podcast. He is the driver of the Total Seal Piston Ring CIP1 Chevrolet Camaro Pro Stocker, Mr. Matt Hartford. How you doing, Matt? Hey, Brian. How are you doing today? It's uh, it's going to be 102 here. How about yourself? Uh, you know, we don't have the glaciers anymore. They have receded, uh, but it is uh, about half your temperature. It's probably about 60 degrees here in the uh, in the the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, or some like to call it the People's Republic of. You get to pick. <laughs> well, we, 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 you know, we've been told that you know heat definitely helps. Uh, make the coronavirus subside at least. I'm not sure if there's a, a ton of data that supports that, but you know we've heard that heat is definitely something that can help. So we're trying to raise the temperatures out here as quickly as we can. <laughs> well, yeah, it also you know it helps with spontaneous human combustion as well. So if you can get a couple of people just to ignite, I think that you know your ratio gets better as far as the whole virus thing happens. <laughs> well, you know it, it, this is this is if you could send some of them glaciers our way because our pools are already getting <laughs> to the point that they're too warm. We got to start putting ice in our pools already. Yeah, those are problems we don't normally suffer with up here but man you know um, I wanted to catch up with you Matt because uh, such a bizarre time and in so many respects not just for drag racing but really just for everyday life um, you're in the business of manufacturing you know engine parts you guys make piston rings at, at total seal so i guess if you could talk to me in, in general terms you know what have you been seeing as a business owner i know that some guys in the aftermarket i've talked to have been i don't want to say pleasantly surprised but they've been a little bit surprised as to you know demand didn't quite fall off as bad as they thought i mean talk to me a little bit about what's going on with your piston ring company you know we we were in in the middle of march when we seen this coming i guess it would have been about the time that they they canceled gainesville coming back from orlando and getting, getting ready for gainesville you know, we started hearing that a lot of the places were shutting down and, the, you know, we're going to start having some stay-at-home orders. And at the time, like I think like everybody else, we really were not sure what that was going to mean for Total Seal nor anybody on the planet. And, you know, our governor decided on, in the, I guess it would have been the last couple of days of March, that Arizona went into a lockdown, a stay-at-home order for the entire month of April. 
And, you know, we were really concerned. We, we immediately had a, uh, a plant meeting and, you know, we've got, you know, between 50 and 60 employees yeah. and everybody was really scared for, you know, what was going to happen to them for their families. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, were they going to still get a paycheck if the, if the company or if the state went into lockdown, what was total still going to do? The good news is there, you know, there is some silver lining to, to everything. The good news is, is that so many of our customers around the world and, and a lot in the United States, rely on total seal to manufacture piston rings not just for race cars everything from agricultural you know tractors to industrial compressors to pump natural gas on the low side of the well to aerospace components to aviation components so we were deemed an essential business we we had to stay in business and and when you get these large major publicly owned companies sending us letters stating please don't shut down because we need your products that gave us enough ability to go to our employees and go to our staff and say, listen, we're going to do everything we can to keep you safe. And we want you to do everything you can to keep your family safe. But the doors are not closing. No one is being laid off. No one's being furloughed. No one's being let go. We're going to operate to the best of our ability and produce the best product we can for every industry. And, you know, we're going to do what's right. And that just was a sigh of relief from everybody in the, in the factory. And, you know, I'm really happy that we didn't have to lay anybody off. Yeah, no, that's a that's actually a, a great thing. And, you know, it's interesting to me when we talk about manufacturing businesses and, and a company like yours or so many others. I mean, companies like Manton Pushrods and others, you know, they were able to pivot and, and they were making some uh, medical stuff for a while. And, you know, it is it is amazing how in a business like yours that has needs well beyond what we think about in racing um, that you're able to during this time kind of keep things rolling and and keep people employed which is a fantastic thing for everybody involved and we look at kind of the flexibility some other companies have to to continue doing that type of stuff too it's um it's really neat and, and i guess from a personal perspective you know you you came into the role you have in the company you know, a little less than a year ago now and you know you're a guy who's a veteran you're in the in the navy and in the service you know, have you had to call on any of that kind of life experience in terms of a manager, you know, being a manager at this time in your life? Because this is something that, you know, this is something that guys that have been running companies for 50, 60 years have never dealt with, let alone a guy who's been in your job for, for less than a year. Well, I, you know, the, the, the thing that I think is most important to look at and, and the thing that I've relied on probably the the most the most of anything in, in this experience is I've relied on people around me who have a lot of experience in a lot of different venues. Um, everybody from the chairman of the board to people on our board to my operations director to my CFO, everybody has life experiences in different roles that I just, I've reached out just like you went on a race team and I've tried to surround myself with the most knowledgeable people that I can get to help me because I guarantee you I do not have all the right answers. And if I have to make all the decisions on my own, it's probably not going to be what's best for everybody. So you, you reach out and you say, you've got all this financial background in so many different companies. You've got all this operations where you've been, you've been through companies that have been successes and you've been through companies that have had failures. And, and then you start dealing with just business people and, and you take everything that they can bring to the table and you sit down and you say, what is the best plan for this company to succeed? And that's what I've done. I've just, I, I've, I've utilized every resource that I can. And I think that is, I think that's what you need to do in any, anything in life, let alone whether it's running a business in a hard time or running a race team, you know, just utilize the resources to the best of your ability. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great point. And, and 
generally speaking, I think people who are successful, especially in times of, uh, of some turbulence like we're having now, are those that are able to call on and willingly able to call on the experience of, of people that have, you know, great kind of specialties or specializations. If I can ask, you know, during the during maybe the most heightened moments of uncertainty at the very beginning of this when, you know, when stay-at-home orders were coming out and stuff like that, you know, if there was one single thing that, that made you stare at the ceiling a little bit at night, what, what was it? I guess it was just looking back that, you know, like you said, I've, I've owned the company for less than a year and, and right at the end of March, beginning of April, I sat in my office one morning and I got off the conference call and I said, what the hell did I get myself into? You know, you, you know, we, we, we were, we were on a mission to have the best first quarter that we had ever had. And things were looking really great in January and February momentum was building. And then, you know, of course, March hit and, and we went into this. But, but here's the thing. I chose to be in this role, and I am happy that I'm the person at the helm during this crisis. I would rather be leading it than, than have someone, you know, or having to be with a company that I don't, didn't maybe trust the leadership. And I'm not saying we ever sure. have that here, but I'm happy that I'm the guy that can go out and reach out for help from other people and make those decisions that, hey, we need help from this individual or this organization or this team of people, let's let's build the best team we can in this time of crisis. And we're going to get through this. And we're going to be a stronger company when we come out. And, you know, we're going to be more efficient. Everything is going to be positive when we come out of this from what we've learned over this six, eight week time so far. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 the great sucker punch, right? This is like one of those things. And it's like, who saw this coming? And the answer is, you know, unless you're some kind of a forward thinking scientist that probably there, I'm sure there were many, uh, <laughs> somewhere along the lane, like just normal Joe Blow guys like you and me, just, uh, foreseeing this happening is, uh, is something that's just so far out of, uh, out of left field it's wild so thanks for the insight on the on the business side of things we move over to the racing side and you know when we talk about what's <laughs> going to happen when we uh resume this season any trade put out the as i call it they made an announcement about an upcoming announcement yesterday <laughs> right <laughs> and um you know one of the things they did mention was that the season uh you know beginning if you will uh again late august or rather late july early august and the the end of the day for me is they're talking about running 16 weeks straight. Um, this is this is going to put an immense strain on everybody. And for a guy like you that runs a business, a company of the size that uh, you guys operate at, and especially coming out of a time like this, you can be candid with me because I don't know if, if it's possible for a guy like you to run 16 weeks in a row. No, and and you know something. If if, if let's just go back three four years ago, even two years ago, at, at that time, you know, I had a. Two years ago, I had a barely competitive car. You know, maybe four years ago, I really wasn't competitive at all. I was a first-round duck no matter where I went, unless you know, unless we got lucky and cut a light. Now, legitimately, I have the quickest car in NHRA Pro Stock, bar none. No one can say that we don't. And COVID nineteen happens. Everything gets you know, everything gets put in the bag. You know, tied up, shaken around, dumped out, and now we're looking at a 16 week in a row. You know, 16 weekends in a row schedule starting potentially in Seattle, maybe Denver. And for a guy like me, I don't think it's feasible. Yeah. You know, here I have the best car, but yet probably not a chance to run for a championship this year. And and that's no fault of anybody. I I understand that you know business has to go on, NHR has to go on. And there's a lot of teams with corporate sponsors that need the money and they've already been paid to run the entire season. I'm an independent. 
you know, we have help from friends and my crew is, is, is my family and friends. They all have day jobs for me to leave, you know, for me to be able to say I can get away for those weekends and my crew to get away for those weekends. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that was not what we anticipated. And, and we really didn't sign up for that at the beginning of the year. So it's kind of disappointing to have such a good program right now with some uncertainty of what the future is going to hold. Yeah. And, and, you know, your sentiment I'm sure is, is not singular. And, um, I, and I, and it's not wrong. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it is the great, um, you know, I don't want to say the great no win situation because there's some, you know, there's some win for people in there somewhere. It is, you know, trying to service markets that uh, you want to have races in, trying to service markets that uh, races that have, you know, got people have signed on to become sponsors of, trying to figure out geography and all the other stuff. I, I am, of all the people I know in this world that have been going through this thing in terms of, you know, business people and, and people trying to make, make decisions in a, in a, moving treadmill of a situation i really don't envy uh the schedule makers and and the competition side of nhra over the last couple of months because it's it's you know they they make the joke about you know the pioneers are the guys that get arrows that got the arrow shot in their ass and the guys that make the schedule the ones that are going to get the arrow shot in their ass you know there's no two ways around it and it's just it's it's, a a no-win situation for them brian they cannot win no matter what schedule they put out, it's not going to be good for somebody. And, it, you know, if, if they were, let's just say hypothetically, they went to an eight race schedule starting in August. You would say for me, for Matt Hartford and, and the, the Total Seal you know, race team, that would be a great schedule for the rest of the year. But for a team like, let's just say, potentially Greg and Jason at KB Racing with Summit, you know, obviously Summit doesn't only want to see cars racing for for eight weekends, you know, they want to see 24 races or 18 races for pro stock. And, and I'm sure when you look at Denso and and you look at companies like that, that are major sponsors, not only to the series, but to, to, to individuals and teams out there, they want the cars out there every weekend on TV because that's what they're paying their marketing dollars for. So there's going to have to be a give and take. And unfortunately at the end of the year, and, and, and I say this with all due respect to whoever wins the championship, I hope that next year that number one has an asterisk next to it because truly it is going to be a season of just attrition. Who has the funding to to make it through these 16 races and who has enough parts to make it through these 16 races? It wasn't what the 2020 schedule was meant to look like. So therefore there's going to be a winner and we're going to, we're going to honor the winner, but it's not the same as going through the normal procedure that everybody was expecting. Oh, that's a fact. And, um, and that in a lot of ways goes across all of sport, you know, I mean, um, NHL and NHL, uh, the Boston Bruins right now, the best, uh, have the best record in the league. They haven't played a game in two months, but they have the best record in the league. So if the NHL cancels the season tomorrow, you know, do they give the Stanley cup to the Boston Bruins? And if they do, do the Boston Bruins get to celebrate it? I mean, is there, obviously there probably wouldn't be because of the current circumstance, but do you have a championship parade if your team wins by default? You know, there's a lot of questions to be asked about that. You're right. Right. And then, like I said, that, and that's no disrespect to whoever wins because there are teams out there and, you know, you have the forces and the Schumachers and the Colettas. They're, they're well-funded and, and, you know, they're going to go out there and run week after week and they have the parts to sustain. There's going to be a lot of teams that could really be a thorn in the side to, to the big teams that simply won't be able to compete at the level, meaning 16 weeks in a row and take that and take one more step. Qualifying is only going to be two, you know, two runs on Saturday. So there's, 
there's going to be limited mistakes able to happen to move forward. So it, it's just like I said, I I think NHRA is making the best decisions that they can with the knowledge that they have. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't feel it's going to be a great season for us based on I just don't know that we can go to that many races that many times, that many weekends in a row. I know that uh, out there in the road, we're traveling around. You guys, you and Chris and Amber and everybody, you like to, you know, you like to eat, like to have some drinks. What is the place, if there has been one, that you've missed attending, or, or a restaurant, a spot, anywhere you like to hang out on the uh, on the road that we have not visited yet, or might not visit this year because of everything that's happened? You know, it's it's the one the one race that we always look forward to going to is is obviously anywhere on the Western Swing. We have we have a great time in Denver, Sonoma, and Seattle. Yeah. Uh, it's three unique towns, three weekends in a row, and there's a lot of stuff to do downtown Denver. Sonoma, obviously, all of us have this, uh, uh, you know, this kind of love for wine, which isn't <laughs> right. isn't necessarily a great thing. But my, <laughs> my my wine cellar is taking a hit. Let me tell you that that is something that it, it's been a struggle to try to make the volume or the, the quantity of <laughs> bottles go up over this last eight weeks. And, you know, so, so Sonoma's always been a, a, a great time because we go, you know, one of our sponsors is Jarvis Wines. They're out of uh, Napa. So we always go visit them, and, and the winemaker would always come out and hang out with us at the track. And then, of course, Seattle's always a, a great time. There's there's a couple little, you know, hole-in-the-wall bars. One of them is called The Spot yes. in Seattle. And, yep. and, we, and we always go there. Um, pretty much every night on the way home from track, we, you know, we stop and we have a couple cocktails and we uh, play some pull tabs and then we go out to dinner. You know, it's just it's we've done it for so many years in a row that it's been a blast. That I'm gonna miss I'm gonna miss the Western Swing. I was gonna miss the Western Swing anyway because we weren't originally gonna run Denver. Now it looks like we may run Denver if it restarts, but it won't be a swing. Gotcha. Yeah, and and I guess one last question before I let you go. You know, I find myself on on different days. I find myself either being you know mildly annoyed at the situation, being somewhat frustrated, being a little down on it, or then I find myself at times being like flat out angry at stuff. Have you been feeling that kind of wave of emotions as well? Because it comes and goes on certain days. I think for me. So when when I was sitting on the plane, I was sitting on a little CRJ and at DFW heading to Gainesville. And, you know, obviously there's not a lot of planes that go in and out of Gainesville. They're all small regionals. And I, half the plane for sure was going to the race. And I remember, you know, Lump, you know, Brian Self, the crew chief on Aaron Stanfield's car, he was sitting one seat kind of behind me. And, and there was a bunch of other racers there. And all of a sudden, everybody's phone started blowing up. And it was the same thing as like Gainesville's been canceled. So immediately we all, they hadn't shut the front door yet of the plane. So we all started getting off. And of course the, the flight attendant was like, you can't get off the plane. And all of us did. And our bags were all still sitting out in the, on the jetway. Cause it was, you know, their small plane. You have to gate check your bag. So we're all trying to figure out now how to get home. And I remember American airlines charging me $660 for a flight from DFW back to Phoenix that day. Oh my God. They wouldn't, they wouldn't roll any of anything else into it. I had to pay, had to stand in line, got a flight, got home. I was angry that day because I didn't truly understand, you know, how the severity of what was going on, not only around the world, but in, you know, in, in the U.S. With, at the time, coronavirus, yeah. now COVID-19. That day, I was truly upset about spending that kind of money and the race being canceled. And, and our, you know, our rig was sitting there. The car was unloaded. It was, you know, crazy. There you go. Yeah. It was already there. And, you know, we just came from Orlando, went 6.46-0. We, you know, we were looking forward to Gainesville. That night when I got home, speaking of wine, I opened up a bottle of wine and I sat there and I thought about it. And I said, you know something? 
it doesn't matter what happens. Tomorrow morning, I got a business to run. That was on a Thursday. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be at Total Seal. I got a business to run. I am extremely fortunate to be in the situation that I'm in. You know, I have a great company. I have great people around me. I have a great family, a lot of really good friends. Whatever happens is going to happen, and it's out of my control. I am not going to let this frustrate me. And from that day on, I have not been frustrated with the one thing that NHRA has said or done concerning racing because, honestly, they're doing their best. To, to say that Josh and Ned and Glenn aren't trying as hard as they can to accommodate everybody would be foolish. We're not going to agree with everything that they do. But at the end of the day, they're not trying to make our life hard. They're just trying to survive like the rest of us. Amen to that, man. No, I appreciate, man, your insight and honesty and uh, look forward to uh, at some point, at some undisclosed location in the future, hanging out with you at a racetrack. <laughs> um, thanks for what you're doing with the business down there and uh, I'm sure the families and everybody involved with the company is appreciative of uh, of your guys' leadership and making sure the lights are on and the doors are doors are open and the machines are running. So, appreciate it, well, that, Matt. That's, that's priority number one, Brian, first and foremost. You bet. Matt Hartford, thank you very much for your disappearance on the Insider Podcast. I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Brian. All right, so joined by our second guest here in the NHRA Insider Podcast in this episode, Will Smith, driver of the Harada Motorsports A-Fuel Dragster. Will, how you doing today, man? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, and you know what? I've already shortchanged you because I've only introduced you as, a, as the driver of the car, but let's be honest here, man. You are a, a charter member, a found an OG member of the Mullet Mafia. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. That is correct. Um and, and not only do I get to drive, uh, set aside from uh, acting a fool sometimes with my bro Dave Arado on social media, um, you know, I, I work at the shop um, every week, you know, putting motors together, getting the car ready, getting the truck trailer ready, you know, driving the rig to the races with Dave, you know, kind of <clears throat> get the opportunity to do everything from one end of the spectrum to the other, and, and I wouldn't change any of it. No, and, uh, and your involvement even extends outside of the NHRA with what you do with the PDRA organization, which we'll get to all that stuff because uh, yes. you're a guy I've wanted to talk to for a while. But first, I want to talk to you about um, kind of your trip into the into the ranks of being an A-Fuel Dragster competitor because it was something that you had aspired to for a long time, certainly a goal you had. Let's talk about the timeline from when you committed yourself saying, this is something I want to do. I want to do it at a, a competitive level. How long did it take you to get from that point to when you actually got in the car? And I guess what were some of the uh, biggest challenges along the way? I'm going to say total. It was probably, uh, it took me two years to get a license or to get the opportunity to do that. Um, licensed in 17 and the next thing I know I'm competing in 18 and, and with a great team uh, but back in 2015 I was at Indy uh, for the Nationals and um, I was working for another team back at that time and one night I was hanging out with Dave at, over at his pit and I told him I said hey what would it take for me to get licensed in your car and he, he literally kind of laughed and he says man you want to drive this thing and I'm like absolutely you know I said he was like why don't you just go straight and get it, you know, try to put a top fuel deal together. I'm like, come on, man. I'm going <laughs> to, I got to <laughs> work my way up. You know, it was kind of a joke, but, uh, um, he was like, man, these cars are boring. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So, uh, anyway, we talked about it and I think, you know, he realized I was serious about it and me and Dave go back years. I mean, we've been friends for such a long time and, uh, it was 2017, when we were able to uh, put a 
you know, a, a date together, put the opportunity together to, uh, you know, get me behind the wheel. And I actually received a phone call from him in December of 16 saying, Hey, you want to do this? Now's and, the time, uh, right? Yeah. Right. And, and we hadn't talked about it for a little while. You know, obviously it was something I still wouldn't do, but it kind of caught me by surprise. And I said, absolutely. And he says, well, let's plan it. So we did. And the first date fell through for, you know, just reasons we couldn't control. And, and, uh, later that year, as you said, I'm, you know, work from PDRA and, uh, we went to Indy that year for the uh, PDRA event. And I was able to, uh, put a deal together to have Dave come down and put on a little grudge race with Jason Scruggs. Cool. So injected car versus the baddest pro extreme cars at the time, you know, so it was awesome. So he comes down, and before all that happened, he says, hey, why can't we get your license at Indy? I'm like, wow, never thought about that. Never yeah, right. came to mind because I'm there working, you know. And long story short, uh, my, my higher-ups at PDRE were gracious enough to allow me to do that. So that's where I got licensed. And when that happened, it was a very surreal you know, emotional thing for me because I've had so many people tell me I could never do it. I could never compete at that level. Um, I didn't have what it takes. Definitely, you know, tell me I didn't have the money. I'll never go nowhere with it. And uh, that always just kind of fueled the fire for me. And I mean, I had people laughed in my face, you know, and, and I was really surprised that, and I think Dave and his dad was too, that the licensing process went very well, nice. you know, considered. Yeah. So, when it was all said and done, we were talking, and Dave says, "Now we got to figure out how to go race." And uh, <laughs> less than a year later, you know, we um, had some sponsors come on board and, and made the deal happen. And you know, it's I'm going in my third year. You know, this year is my third season with them, and it, I see now why opportunities for me hadn't worked out in the past. You know other driving opportunities or riding opportunities, I should say as well. Um, I, I think this was really where I needed to be. Yeah. You know? Isn't that it's interesting where I want to be? Yeah. And, and to me, it's a, it's a very, and that was, that's a, the last part of your answer to strikes me there because you know, when you, when you're able to have, something that's working as your current arrangement is and working well, you're able to, like you said, kind of do a little self-analysis and look back and say, okay, like either I made a mistake in this process here or the people I was trying to work with made a mistake in this process here. And how, I mean, that's, that's incredibly valuable, right? I mean, not only just for now, but for what you're going to try to do maybe in the future. Oh man, it's it 100%. And I'll tell you, it's just like, I was asked the question one time, you know, as far as if each run in the car is, is the run I make, the last run I made as exciting as the first run. And I said, I look at them, they're all exciting. Because I look, whether you smoke the tires to hit, or it shakes the tires, or it does 850-foot wheelie, or it goes low ET, you can always take something from that and learn from it. And and I, I consider myself being that type of guy in my successes and my failures, both on and off the track, what can I take from that and learn from it and apply it to the future? And, uh, and that's something I just try to study a lot and you know, tried to prevent myself from making those mistakes 
in the future, you know, the yeah. same ones. Well, and that's not, you know, it's uh, on a personal level, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You know, when you, when you, absolutely not. It, it, you know, <laughs> especially when you're, you know, when, when you're a racer, anybody involved in racing, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes to sit back and, and it doesn't matter what your role is, but to sit back and go, Oh geez, I actually did screw that up. You know, <laughs> you know, these, that, right. that might've actually been my fault there. So it's great. And to me, the people that, um, you know, tend to make an impact in, in this sport and really in any motorsport are the ones that are able to reach that point where they can objectively look at situations, whether it's, you know, a situation in the race car itself or in their own career. Um, it, it, that, that carries a lot of strength with it. So that's a really, uh, that's a really cool thing. One of the things that fascinates me about the Harada family, Obviously, their legacy in the sport of, of drag racing is amazing, but they're also a family that respects like the whole. They respect the whole uh, environment of the sport. Meaning, like the car that you drive that has the most incredibly awesome paint job on it, with these little snippets of dozens of famous drag cars through history. It takes somebody that's really smart and that's really respectful of of the history of the sport to pull something like that off. And boy, you guys crushed it with that. You know, I don't think I could have said that any better myself. Um, and I and I think, I mean, I, I admire Dave and his family for that and, uh, and for <clears throat> many other reasons. But the, the love and the passion that Dave has for the sport of drag racing is exactly what I have. And, and, Dave, are, and Dave and I are alike in so many ways, and we get along so well. But we love drag racing. It's our passion. And we love the history of it, where we come from. And when he came up with that idea and started talking about it, that that was something he wanted to do, and he's like, hey, what do you think? And and, and I'm like, dude, you got to do that. Like, that's, oh, man, you know. And we talked about cars. You know, there was a couple, you know, that I was able to give input on, but most of them he you know, were some of his favorite cars and, and, you know, it was just a really cool deal. And I'm going to tell you when we rolled out for the first race with that car, it was such, and still to this day is such an honor to drive that car for what it represents. That car fits me to a T just as much as it does Dave, you know, and it's just very special, you know, and, and I don't know if you saw this year, but when we ran the, the baby Gators back in March, Dave had actually painted my helmet up like Eddie Hill. Yes, Eddie I did Hill see that. Idol back yes. In the day. You know, so that was really special for me as well. But um, Dave did tell me, he says, you know, I never would have thought this paint scheme would have gained the hype and exposure and attention that it's brought to us. And I said, well, I told you from the get go, I'm like, <laughs> I think we'll be blown away by what this car does for us. Yeah. You know? And, uh, well, no, it's brilliant, it's and awesome. and it and it takes some guts to pull it off too, because you know if you like on paper, if you and I are just sitting here, because I'm not, I have zero artistic ability. You know, my kids are at home doing their Me school too. from home, <laughs> and uh, you know my son does art projects, and they're far outstrip anything I could possibly complete at you know 40 years of age, but. You know, if someone were to tell me, oh, we're going to make this car and it's going to have a gazillion different body panels from all these different uh, old cars on it, I would kind of like nod my head and go, yeah, that that sounds okay. But in my head, I think, my God, it's going to look like it's going to look like a mess. And then when we saw this thing in the flesh, it was like, 
this is the most genius idea of all time. And in the detail of it, is where the brilliance is to me. It's like the nose cone with the swamp rat on it. You know, it's and it's just like every little piece of this thing. It's like a it's like a quilt, right? It's like a quilt that has been perfectly put together. Someone has actually told me that exact statement. <laughs> Said, man, this thing looks like a quilt. Yeah. <laughs> but I will tell you, I mean, obviously it's all painted. Dave painted every piece, every panel himself. Um, I watched him do most of it. And, and he knocked it out fairly quick. He's super talented. It was just, he did an outstanding job on it. And it was, like I said, obviously when I say paint, it's all paint. Some people thought it was a wrap. It's, it's no wrap. But the detail that he was able to put in it, like you speak of, I mean, some of those cars were so old, it was hard to find pictures of them online. Yeah. You know, which Dave had a lot of them in his possession, some old hero cards or whatever. But I mean, every panel, every paint scheme, he just nailed it, you know. Um, I, I'm going to say this, that um, the Hot Tuna dragster that he did the one panel of, and that thing had some kind of psychedelic airbrushing going on. And when <laughs> I saw the car, I'm like, man, are you going to be able to match it up? He's like, yeah, I think so. And he did it, and I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's talent. That is like legitimate raw talent. Um, Absolutely. You know, one of the things you mentioned uh, that I think is so important, especially in the style of racing and, and how you guys race, um, you mentioned that your you know your level of passion for drag racing kind of equally matches matches Dave's. And when I see when I see teams succeed in the top alcohol funny car, top alcohol dragster ranks, to me it is it is contingent on that. Like the the teams that the teams that do okay but never really go over the hump are the teams that have a guy or guys that really love it and bleed it and then some people that kind of enjoy it and are into it versus the teams that are really successful out there are when every single member of the team bleeds for it and that definitely seems like where you guys are at absolutely and 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 i want to say this too and i've said it in a lot of interviews but i mean i admire dave and his parents and their team you know when i was a young kid from seven, eight, nine years old. I mean, I followed them for years. And now being able to drive for them, I mean, to me, that's just like there should be a book written about that. <laughs> but when I started driving for, for Dave, or right before I did, Dave told me, he says, <clears throat> he said, one thing about us, he said, we're going to go to the races, we're going to have fun, but we're going to win. And I knew that. And that, you know, is kind of what I was looking for. I'm looking... You know, I was hoping to be with a serious, hardcore team, and, you know, that's that's who they are. That's who we are, you know. And he and I communicate very well together. And, like I said, we, we share a lot of interest, and we just get each other, you know. And uh, I think from a driver-crew chief relationship, I, I, I mean, I would I would put us up there with any of the best of them you know, as far as the relationship between the two and how they communicate, what our goals are. You know, uh, you mentioned, you know, your process and your, your kind of trip from, from wanting to do this and, and to be able to do it and kind of, you know, pushing some naysayers and some doubters aside along the way. I feel like, um, you know, drag racing and, and hardcore drag racers are, uh, resilient people for any number of reasons, whether they're you know, like a hardworking business owner or they're somebody that's overcome some stuff in their life. You know, I, it's a common thread between a lot of people. And I feel like that common thread is why once we're able to get back on the racetrack, this sport is going to, uh, is going to fare. Okay. I, I don't, you know, I'm not thinking it's going to be a miracle, but what I am thinking is there's a lot of racers out there who are not 
trying to offload everything they own. There's a lot of racers that are biding their time to get back out on the racetrack. And I think a lot of that comes from the resilience that it takes to actually compete in this sport in the first place. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, you know, we're we're sitting here at the shop getting everything ready, and we're you know we're just ready to get back at it when we get the opportunity. And uh, you know, we were even talking about um, well, obviously trying to go test somewhere, but if they don't hurry up and a track open up to let us test, I think we're gonna go out here on route two <laughs> and make a couple hits. <laughs> well, no preparation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if it was up to Kenny Harada. And I swear this this was like last year. I told Dave we were in the shop one day and we were talking about going testing somewhere. And uh, you know, Kenny used to have his front engine dragster, and he used to call the. They had one sheriff in the town here, and he he would call him, and he'd go out there and kind of I guess escort him. And someone be in a push car pushing down the road, he'd come back, fire up the car, you know, on this the main road out here, and. uh Kenny and I were in the pit last year talking about something, talking about testing, and he was like, "Well, I wonder if we could take it out here right on 41 in, in the evening where there ain't no traffic." But, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> and he just kind of grinned. He didn't say yay or nay. <laughs> oh, that's great, man! That so is, I knew he yeah. was serious. <laughs> yeah, you know, you mentioned something before that I wanted to double back um, with you on, and. You know, you talk about having fun and, and showing up to win the race. And that is why I have you and Matt Hartford as guests on the same show because of right. of that that same thing. You know, Matt is Matt is as hardcore a competitor as as can be found in, you know, professional drag racing, but he's also a guy who understands at base that he wants this to be a, an enjoyable experience. He's not going to the racetrack to to beat down his crew his crewmates, his team to death. He's going out there with the intention of being a world class competitor, but at the same time understanding that this is something that he loves, not something that he wants to, you know, turn into a, a drudgery. You know what I mean? Sure. I think, uh, I think that's a lot how we are, you know, and I, I, when I was 14, I started working, you know, while I went to, uh, started working for Steve Johnson, uh, voluntarily, uh, pro stop bike, Steve. Um, then later a couple of years, I went to, uh, work for, uh, Mike Castellano and Shannon Jenkins on their pro mod team. I was with them for almost 10 years. Um, but having the experiences, working you know for those two teams and being heavily involved with other teams at the same time you know it's every team's different yeah. you know um but but when i came to work for dave you know i had all this experience with these different people and these different teams and seeing how each team handled things differently and not saying any of it was bad but it's just sure everybody's got their own way to right yeah and uh coming into dave i you know, with his team, I guess I kind of expected it to be similar, and it's like completely different, but it's different in a good way. You yeah, know? yeah, I it's mean, it's a it just works for us exactly, and that's that's the most important thing that it that it works for you guys, and clearly it does. Uh, so let's talk about your stuff outside of the world of NHRA drag racing involvement with the PDRA series, which is the you know premier door slammer drag racing series on the planet at this point um obviously you guys just like us at nhra were are on a holding pattern waiting to have your first event of the season but i want to talk to you about how you got involved with the pdra and what your role is there so i'm the marketing director for the for the series um love that job love the people i work for just um a great association to be a part of 
I started working for them in January of 16. Um, I actually, my last job I was at, I was kind of, I guess, reached the limit in opportunity, and I, I realized, hey, it's it's time to, to move on, and, you know, if this drag racing thing is what I want to do, which clearly it has been my whole life, never changed, I'm like, I got to make some changes, and I'm not getting any younger, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I wasn't old, but. I was 26 at the time, and I'm or 25, and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm definitely not getting younger, so I gotta got to make some change. And uh, at that time, I, I picked up the phone and and called uh, Bob Harris. He was the uh, race director, series director for the PDRA at that time. And it was just so ironic that that time they were looking for at at that time a marketing coordinator. Okay. And when they found out I had left my other job. They were like, hey, you know, he knows a lot of people. He's, you know, been involved with the series in different levels, you know. Yeah, just, understands the business. The yeah, absolutely. For. Yeah. So they made me an offer I really couldn't pass up, and the uh, rest is history. I went to work for them in 16, and I'm, I'm still there. Um, I, just, I just love it. I mean, I get up in the morning every day and go to bed every night and, and pray and thank God for the opportunities that I have to be to my life being 24 7 drag racing yeah you know i turned a once hobby into a career so i'm fortunate to say that i work for the pdra and the marketing director and do all the sponsorships and whatnot for the series which i love that's my nine to five job per se which is actually a 24 7 job yeah. and then I, <laughs> I know the feeling yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and then i go racing full-time with the harradas i mean I pinch myself all the time. I'm like, this can't be real. No, it's a, it's, it's a great thing. And you know, um, I think, uh, I think the work you've done there has been spectacular. And I always, I follow that series. I was uh, fortunate enough to work with you guys at PRI last year as part of your uh, awards uh, night, which was a great time. Um, you did an outstanding job, by the way. Oh, we had a blast. I mean, that was when within the first 10 minutes when the junior dragster kids were basically calling each other out, I thought, these are my people. This is a good, this is going to be a good time. <laughs> and uh, we definitely yep. had a fun night of it. But, um, you know, I want to ask you too, you know, about what you guys are doing now, because everybody's kind of dealing with this thing a little bit different. I applaud you for what you and, and Dave and the team have been doing as far as just making people smile, man. It seems like a little thing, but the stuff you guys are doing, kind of having fun with the whole Mullet Mafia thing, making some fun, creative content um, for not only, you know, sponsors like Lucas Oil or whoever you guys are working with at the time when you're making these videos, but talk to me about the planning stages of this stuff and the execution. How many takes? You know, I, I can honestly say there's not many takes because <laughs> it's it's who we are, it's what we do. We love to laugh, we love to cut up, and and we love to entertain people. And, and something I've always enjoyed doing. I, I everybody that knows me knows I love to laugh and make people laugh. And Dave's a lot of the same way, you know. And and it goes back to the first video. I got to tell you the story on that in Gainesville at the Baby Gators. Uh, that Wednesday night, we're hanging out in the pits and everything. I'm sitting on the golf cart, and someone mentioned, and I've done bottom in for two years now. Somebody mentioned about getting oil or something in their hair or whatever, and it just clicked in my head, and I said, that's it. And they're like, what? I said, tomorrow, we're going to make a Lucas Oil video, and we're going to um, talk about their hair care products. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
I get up the next morning, and we we didn't run on Thursday, so we just had a day where we're just you know piddling around service and stuff, you know. So I told Dave, I'm like, hey, we're gonna make a video. I said, you want to be in it? And he was like, yeah. What, what are you gonna do? So I told him because I didn't think he would do it. I mean, I did, but I didn't. Yeah, sure. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> so I told him what I was gonna do, and he started laughing. He was like, well, is there a way we could pause the video and and put like real hair gel and i said man come on we're using the real deal man i said i got that stuff in my hair all the time and it ain't fell out yet for two years so we made that little video and the response that we got from that it just it had like six thousand views like the next morning which i thought was a ton considering it was just a oh yeah it's great crazy little video so we started doing others and we got back to the shop and and we had already, he and I had already had a plan of execution as far as creating a channel per se for this year, whether it be doing these videos at the shop or at the racetrack or going to some of our sponsors' uh, businesses and speaking with them. So <clears throat> I'm sure you saw the Top Mullet TV. That was oh, yeah, Top Mullet TV, created. man. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> We uh, just finished filming that yesterday. Uh, <laughs> we will have that ready to go out tomorrow at noon. And I'm really, really looking forward to the response people get. But on that show, it, it goes back to, okay, we're going to be serious at times. <laughs> we're going to talk about sponsors. We're going to talk about racing. We're going to talk about life in general. Uh, just anything and everything under the sun. you know. So we want people to get to know us more um you know put our personalities out there and entertain people and you know try to uplift people in this hard time you know because it's, it's a bad time for everyone and uh i think this is the appropriate time to start this you know and, and get this going but uh we're, we're definitely i mean this is going to be a, a deal we continue on in the future for quite some time hopefully so um yeah and it's i think there's been two videos <clears throat> two maybe three clips that we had to retake but for the most part that's great hey man. what's said it goes you know yeah no it's fantastic <laughs> and and uh you know anything to me that's like you know it's smart it's funny it's uh, a little self-depreciating it, it 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 does all the right things if you're a fan of drag racing and, and the attitude of our sport that is uh this stuff hits it right between the eyes uh where should people be following you tell me about your social handles tell me about where should everybody be following you and harada motorsports um, Harada Motorsports on Facebook, Will Smith Motorsports on Facebook, uh, Instagram, it's Will Smith Motorsports. Instagram for Harada's is Harada underscore Motorsports. Uh, we keep all of those platforms updated regularly. Um, you can catch all of our Top Mullet TV episodes on there, all of our sponsor one-off videos we do, and just everything, you know, everything we put out there you can catch on any of those platforms. I appreciate your time, Will, and uh, again, appreciate and uh, very much respect your story, grit, and determination of getting where you've gotten today, and uh, everything that you're doing in the sport is uh, is fun. Uh, enjoy hanging out with you, enjoy working with you on different projects, and I thank you for taking some time to hang out on this one with me today. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity, Brian. Keep up the great work. Be good, man, and make sure you uh, you know maintain that professional level of the trim on the mullet. I don't know how you do it. It's, I don't have the. I don't know if you have somebody you know that, that gives you the assist because if I try to cut my own hair, I can tell you it would not look like that. <laughs> hey, business in the front, nitro in the back. 
Well, it was definitely a fun time today talking to Matt Hartford and talking to Will Smith, getting good perspective on professional-level racing as well as what the sportsman teams are doing to wait out this break in the action in the world of NHRA drag racing. I promised you something fun here at the end of the show, and you know, one of the things we all want this coronavirus, COVID-19 thing to do is to blow over. And so I was, as I was thinking about this the other day, I thought, blow over. Let's go back and revisit some of the famous blowovers in the history of NHRA Top Fuel Drag Racing. So what you're going to hear next is a compilation of calls starting in 1986, then moving to 1989, then 1990, 91, and 92. You have Don Garlitz at the 1986 Summer Nationals in Englishtown recording what can arguably be said is the first ever modern Top Fuel blowover, his car going into a wheel stand and flipping over backwards. The brilliant call by Dave McClellan on that one. There were other blowers that happened during the span of time between the ones I'm sharing today, but these are some of the most memorable in the history of the sport. We jump to 1989. We go to the Winter Nationals with Eddie Hill. It is where he suffers a blowover. Then we go to 1990 in the Montreal race where Don Prudhomme suffers his second blowover of the year that season. He had one in testing at, at Bakersfield, California, and then at the Montreal race, he suffered an incredible crash. Listen to the call of this one very carefully because you have Brock Yates, Don Garlitz, and Steve Evans on the call of this particular incident, and I think it's one of the most interesting and awesome kind of trio calls in drag racing history. The three of them work together so well on this call, it's uh, it's very neat to listen to. Then we go to the 1991 Winter Nationals. Again, you're seeing a theme here on Winter Nationals, but this is Russ Collins driving Bill Miller's car. Collins uh, suffers a blowover. Collins, the decorated... Uh, Hall of Fame level motorcycle drag racer that transitioned into top fuel and a great driver, charismatic guy. His interview with Steve Evans after the crash is pretty telling when he kind of says, hey, this thing is way worse in terms of this phenomena of blowovers than anybody could have expected. And the last one you're going to hear and listen to is Don Garlitz and Steve Evans calling Jimmy Nix having a blowover at the 1992 Winter Nationals. Not sure why so many of these things happened at Pomona, specifically at the Winter Nationals, but they really did happen there with maybe more frequency than anywhere else. During this period in the mid to late 80s through the early 90s was kind of the big time era of the blowover. Wheelie bars and other advancements and the construction of the cars kind of put an end to them since then, but... We can say that in the modern world, it does still happen. Steve Collier at Topeka, Kansas, a couple years ago, suffered a blowover, and that is the one I'm going to close the show with. So listen up right now. Take a little trip through drag racing history as we go into our past, some more recent than others, as we go back and listen to some insane incidents of top fuel blowovers. All the drivers in these incidents recovered fully from any injuries they suffered, and really, the only guy that had anything to speak of at any of this was Jimmy Nix, who suffered some burns on his hands. Everyone else was able to climb out under their own power and walk back to their own pit area, which is pretty incredible. Enjoy this trip through NHRA history. Don Garlitz, Englishtown, 1986. Call by Dave McClellan and Steve Evans. Well, Big Daddy Don Garlitz accomplished his longtime goal of setting the national speed record at over 270 miles an hour. It ended up at 271 miles an hour, backed up in the books. In the process, he recorded the quickest elapsed time in the history of drag racing at 5.34 seconds. How badly did Big Daddy want to back that up? Watch this. With 
the touch of a true master of his craft, Garlitz regained control and drove the car through the cloud of tire smoke back toward the starting line. The streamlined dragster came through the crash in remarkably good condition, considering the potential for damage. Garlitz calmly went about the task of shutting down the engine, unbuckled his safety belts and climbed from the cockpit, giving the cheering fans a victory salute. The NHRA safety safari was right on the spot, but unneeded, the 54-year-old Garlitz was uninjured. In slow motion replay, the accident is even more incredible. Rarely do you see a wheel stand carried to its ultimate conclusion, that of turning over backwards, but it happened to Garland. As the car went faster, the front end climbed even higher. From another angle, you can see Garland's problems started the moment he began his run. The small front wheels left the ground almost instantly, touching down only once or twice as the car accelerated rapidly. The aerodynamic nose piece cupped the wind, raising the car till it eventually reached perpendicular, then over on the rear wing. It rotated 180 degrees in a ballet-like pirouette and slammed back to the pavement. The engine still delivering power, the rear slicks trying to move the car forward, thereby halting the backward slide. Garlitz finally hit the brakes and the car stopped, concluding the final chapter of one of the most bizarre incidents we have ever seen. Big Daddy, you okay? I'm just fine. Just been... my feelings is hurt is all. And the world's quickest and fastest dragster uh, took a bad hit too. Yeah, it uh, turned over backwards. <laughs> You've had some harrowing experiences, but that was a, that was an unusual one. It was very unusual. It, um, you know, it just I knew it was gone. It it, it got so high, and then it uh, wouldn't come back. You know, I, I backed out of it early, but it didn't make any difference. It, it was accelerating too hard, and even though the throttle was off, here it didn't make any difference. It caught wind underneath it. Any chance of repairing this car? No, this car can't race at this event. Crazy. <laughs> Eddie Hill, 1989 NHRA Winter Nationals, call by Dave McClellan and Steve Evans. Grandstands were full when Eddie Hill, in qualifying in the near lane against Harley Langlow, had an incredible ride. The car turned over backwards at the finish line. Hill flew through the air at over 260 miles an hour. And in replay, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why this happened. Watch the front wing on our right. See it neutralized there, and all of a sudden tilt up. Instead of downforce, well, it became an airplane. Flying through the air with the greatest of ease, the car was absolutely perpendicular at the finish line. Then it tumbled, gyroing one of the big rear wheels and slicks off the car. It came to earth about a minute later, it seemed. But Eddie Hill rode out this incredible flip and was okay. And immediately, Dave, the conversation between Eddie and his crew turned to, what do we do now? We need to borrow a race car, and that they did. Don the Snake Perdome, 1990 Molson Le Grand National, Montreal, Canada. Call by Brock Yates, Steve Evans, and Don Garlitz. Don Perdome in an absolutely terrifying over-backwards, over-the-wall crash. The engine still running, spewing fuel as the car stopped, but miraculously, the snake was okay and into the arms of the safety safari. Working with
with me today, Brock Yates and Big Daddy Don Garlic. Don, you have unfortunately seen this kind of an incident from inside the cockpit on two occasions. Well, it wasn't quite as bad as the snakes. I didn't get over that guardrail like that, but I'll tell you, it's a terrifying experience when you go up straight into the sky like that and you got no control of the car. Right off the starting line, the front wheels were bouncing as the car struggled to get up on the tire. Suddenly, when it came off of the concrete pad, the clutch hooked up and it was over. They call this a blowover in uh, hydroplane racing, and it uh, is very similar to the reaction aerodynamically that happens to a speedboat. Don, look how it just peeled the body panels off. Actually, that's good. That slows that blowover down just a little bit. On my car, the body didn't come off. It went over and hit much harder. Now, the wing struts were so strong, they prevented the car from going right down on the roll cage instead of roll over in the tires. And here, the rear tires, Don, are still spinning the engines under power. That's because he's got his foot braced against the throttle pedal. He's waiting for this tremendous impact. He knows it's going to hit something. And when it does, it is with such force that the chassis right here just accordions. That is chrome steel. The rear tire spinning against the rail. Pull the car over the rail into the grass. And again, Don Perdome survived unscathed. One of the most spectacular top fuel incidents ever. Somewhat shaken, Perdome was greeted by his family. Steve Evans was there. Don Perdomo, wife Lynn, his daughter Donna. Don more concerned uh, with their feelings than his own. He's obviously okay. You're all right, Snake? Yeah, I'm all right, Steve. You race a whole career, 25 years, almost incident-free, and in one year, it just uh, is incredible. Yeah, I know. It just started to come up on me there, and it was, you know, picked him up a little bit and set him down, and then it really, really came up. I, I don't quite understand it right at the moment. Well, if you stay between the walls, that's one thing. But when it went over the rail, that's when you frightened us, and I'm sure yourself as well. Yeah, I didn't know where I was at, obviously. I mean, I, I thought, oh, no, you know, I grabbed the brake and tried to stop it and everything. But it was just too late. It just went, went over center, and it was over with. 1990 NHRA Winter Nationals, Russ Collins, called by Steve Evans and Don Garlitz. But not every driver who tried to qualify for the Elite 16-car field was as fortunate. in this blowover incident. Working with us today, three-time top field champ, Big Daddy Don Garlitz, and you have experienced this, Don. This is the phenomenon of top fuel that you just can't hardly do anything about. The car goes out of your control. You cannot react fast enough to make any changes. You just hang on for dear life. But one thing, Don, we had not seen before was that spiral Greg Luganis effect. Well, Russ Collins was very fortunate that every time the car hit, it hit on something that absorbed energy. The front end, the rear tires, the wing struts, and that's what kept him from getting injured. Again, we emphasize the car may have been a total wreck, but Russ Collins was absolutely unscathed. A blow over like this, every driver thinks about it when he leaves his starting line. There's been so many of them lately. Yeah, I never, I really never thought about it. I never worried about this car doing it. And I always thought, you know, watching Ormsby and, and Hill and the rest of them, I thought, hey, I'll stop it. But uh, trust me, there is no way to stop this guy. And as fast as I think I am, boy, there's no way. It, it is instant. It's instant. As we see it again, remember Big Daddy's words, how that car landed on points of absorption. The tires, the wing struts, the front wheel. 
1992 NHRA Winter Nationals. Jimmy Nix, called by Don Garlitz and Steve Evans. But the pursuit of performance is not always met with success. Now watch the wings on the front of the dragster on the left side of your screen. That's the car driven by Jimmy Nix, Don. When that wing broke, it removed a 1,000 pounds of downforce off the front of the car. Jimmy Nix never knew what happened. The car crashed back to the strip, tearing the rear end out of it, breaking the fuel lines, and the engine obviously was blown up, and the oil with the nitromethane was coming out. It caught on fire, and all goes back into the cockpit. You saw the body shred completely. That meant that all of this fire was going in with Nix. You can see it's in the cockpit with him. He's traveling about 150 miles an hour and he is helpless. He wants this car to hit something to stop, and it does. It hits the sand trap, it puts the fire out, and the car runs into the NHRA safety net. Just like throwing sand on your campfire, it extinguished the blaze. NHRA's safety support team was right on the scene, and they were frankly a little amazed by what they found. Jimmy Nix had been conscious through the entire incident. All of his safety equipment had done its job, but still they chopped him to the hospital. And preliminary reports, Jimmy Nix was second-degree burns to his hands only. Steve Collier, 2018 NHRA Heartland Nationals, Topeka, Kansas. Call by me. And immediate tire smoke for Monroe Guest, who went, whoa, no, a blowover at the top end of the racetrack. Steve Collier's car stood up on end and turned over backwards. And again, we get another look at this. Those of you watching on any trail access, it is a stunning thing to see a car this big. There's a bunch of sparks that fly off the car at about 330 feet. And then the wheelie bar just folds up like a piece of licorice. And this thing turns over into the most classic looking blowover you've probably ever seen in your life. As the car turns and does a barrel roll, kind of 180 rotation, lands on the wheels, turns up on the cage, and then slides through the shutdown area. The rear end locked up at one point, and that was kind of the last flop. When the thing, the, the really, the, it, the rear end locked up very late in the crash, and he ended up laying on his side. And that is a look back at some of the wildest incidents in NHRA history. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. We'll be back next week with more fun, more history, and more interesting guests as we continue to count down the days until the NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series resumes action again. Again, we announced earlier in the show it will be the August time frame when the series kicks off. But as I understand it, some things may be brewing behind the scenes to get us on a drag strip having some fun before then. Stay tuned. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.